Hey everybody, welcome to the uh, Nothing Owed podcast. Before we get started today, I wanted to uh, take a minute to apologize for our uh, slow release schedule in 2021. Uh, That is mostly my fault, (laughs) if not completely my fault. Um, I was trying to do some uh, changes on on the back end with the services we use to put these podcasts out, and I think maybe I bit off a little more than I can chew, and uh, not entirely sure what I did wrong, but uh, I had to take a little bit of a pause and make sure everything was put back to normal. Um, I don't want to bore everyone too much and go into too much detail, because it's really not that interesting, but um, I just wanted to take the time to apologize, because our goal is to um, put out one episode a week at a minimum, and we haven't been uh, adhering to that schedule. So, uh, my apologies, but I think I have everything squared away on my end, so we should be back to our normal release schedule of one per week, and we're trying to ramp that up, maybe get two or three episodes a week, but as you know, we uh, all have other jobs, and sometimes other things get in the way, so again, my apologies, but we are working on it, and uh, we do appreciate everyone out there that's listening, we do appreciate everyone actually all over the world, that is uh, coming on board and listening to the show. It's, it's really great to, to know that we have an international audience, even though we uh, are a fairly new podcast. So that's been great. So thank you, everybody. And again, uh, before we start the show, I want to uh, remind everyone that we are sponsored by Modus Nation with uh, Ben and Lindsay, and they are doing an amazing job with, with their stuff. Um, some of the new sweatshirts that have come out are, are awesome. Uh, t-shirts are great. Uh, like I said, we have some. They're making us uh, some t-shirts, which uh, I should have those up for sale here shortly. Just trying to decide on uh, what platform I want to post them on. Um, so yeah, got a lot going on. But again, uh, season two sponsored by Madu's Nation. Um, they make some great stuff. Great company, great people. Uh, their clothing's awesome. And on top of that they donate a lot of their proceeds to charity, which is really incredible when you think about it because they're a, uh, a fairly new company also. But, um, you know, even before they're huge, uh, you know, they're taking the time to give back to, uh, to the community, in particular the, uh, the veteran community and really the, the local community too, uh, where they're at in, uh, in Las Vegas. So I really can't speak highly enough of, of Modus Nation and everything that, you know, they're doing. Uh, they've been gracious enough to assist me with a lot of things with the show. Um, you know, and like I said, they, they're sponsoring the show this year. So again, please guys, um, you know, if you want to support the show, use the code, uh, nothing owed at the Modus nation store. Uh, that'll get you a discount. Uh, it's 15%. And, uh, other than that, enjoy the show. We have a, we have a great episode today. Um, I know my intro is a little bit different, so I might repeat myself here in a second, but uh, really great show today. Uh, Murph is our guest. Um, I won't give it away too much because you'll have to listen to the rest of it. But uh, basically, he was a he's a Marine, um, rock star, fitness enthusiast, and uh, he was on a major TV show that uh, you've probably seen. So, like I said, I don't want to give away too much. But with that, I will turn it over to myself, and we will get the show started. All right, thanks everybody.
Welcome back to the uh, Nothing Old Podcast. You're here with Ben and Brian, as always. And we have a really special guest uh, this evening. He is a former Marine, retired as a first sergeant. Uh, you may know him. He has been on Tough as Nails and actually won the competition. So with us tonight, we have Kelly Murphy, or as he is affectionately known as Murph, um, Tough as Nails champion, just a rock star fitness advocate, um, veteran advocate, um, just all around awesome guy, really epitomizes everything that, uh, that we talk about here on the show. Um, he definitely is one of those Marines that I think everyone looks up to, um, just squared away, perfect shape. <laughs> I really, uh, I can't say how impressed I am with, uh, with everything he's doing. And even after his service, um, continues to serve, uh, the veteran community. So we're going to talk about all that. We'll uh, touch on, uh, the show. So, um, without further ado, I'm going to introduce, uh, Murph. So Murph, how you doing? Thanks for coming hey. on the show. Hey, Brian, Ben, thanks for having me. I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, it's a pleasure having you. Um, definitely excited to have you. Um, I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, we, we, uh, Ma Deuce Nation got to do a little work with Murph. Um, and he right. was one of the most, we just reached out to him, uh, you know, on Instagram out of the blue and he has been absolutely gracious. Um, and since, since we started following him, uh, I am just like you in awe, uh, if you took a picture, in fact, he, Murph just posted a picture of, of him looking very young in a Marine Corps dress uniform. Uh, and, you know, the guy is the spitting image of what we want our Marine Corps to look like. He kills it day in and day out. And I'm very excited to, to chat with him. Gracious, gracious gentleman uh, and, and wonderful advocate of, of veterans and, and the things that he's doing that we'll hear about here shortly. But uh, just excited. I'm tickled. I've been waiting all day. <laughs> I appreciate it, Ben. Yeah. And most importantly, he looks to be a uh, Ford truck and Ford Mustang enthusiast, judging by his uh, Instagram pictures. So that's definitely a, a plus on, on his side, too. So, yeah, definitely. absolutely. Let's right jump to that. Let, let's jump to that right now. You won the truck. Like you won the truck, right? The, the, yeah. the current truck you have. Yeah. So um, I've had, I had a 2006 F um, 350. I had for like 14 years. It had some mechanical issues um, over the past few years, but it, I mean, diesel, I love the truck. You know, I built it from scratch, bought it stock, you know, put wheels, tires, lift exhaust, but it took like 14 years to build this thing to how I wanted it. Um, did the show ended up winning. So I knew that, you know, I was getting a truck. So the day after I got back, my wife's like, you know what? Um, that Mustang you wanted is sitting right there. So I'm like, are you kidding me? She's like, yep. I'm like, I didn't believe it. So, um, we went and I traded my truck in that day. This is basically the day after I got back from the show, traded my truck in on, on the Mustang. Um, and then, cause I've always wanted one, never had one. So I got my dream car and then, then I just had to keep my mouth shut. The months went by. And then once the show, the finale aired, I got a call from Ford Motor Company said, Hey Murph, this is Ford Motor Company calling from Detroit. I'd like to get your, your truck. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> so the way it worked, Ford gave me an allowance 
for the truck. It just had to be an F-250. That was the only stipulation. I got to pick out the model. So I went with the Lariat diesel um, four-wheel drive. I took a little extra of the money, my winnings, and I lifted it, this eight-inch lift on 38-inch tires, um, custom bumpers, front and rear. So the, the truck came in, my local Ford dealer paired up with an automotive place called Richline Automotive here in Missouri. And they had the truck for about a month. They wouldn't send me any pictures. So they, they put, I, I had an idea of what I wanted or how it would look like, but they built this thing and we did a big unveiling at the local Ford dealership with them present. And it, it was overwhelming just to see like the truck roll out because they had me like cover my eyes basically. They rolled the truck out on the pad and there it is. I mean, the the truck, the previous truck took 14 years to build. This one took them a month. Ah. You know, the, the truck is custom. Um, so I'm very happy with it. Are they going to make a Murph model? Uh, you can you can order a Murph model. I can go down to Ford here and get <laughs> yeah, a you know, that's, model. Maybe we need to talk to Ford about that. That's a pretty good idea. I'll be your agent. As long as I get a cut, I'll be your agent. I'll talk to you Ford. I'll be your first customer and, and your agent. Awesome. Sounds good. I drive a I drive a smaller version. I guess you have the Marine Corps version. I have the Army version. I get the I have a, a Lariat F one fifty. But it's I'd never go back. Ever. I love it. Yeah, the the trucks are pretty awesome. So this year on this show, season two. Uh, since Ford is putting out the new F-150, um, so the prize this year is still the $200,000, but instead of a two fifty, dollars uh, the winner of season two gets F-150, you know, because that's what Ford's promoting this year. But that truck looks pretty stout. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. They couldn't give away a Raptor? You know, I, I don't know. I think they're they're going after the, you know, since the show's about blue collar. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. They're, they're just trying to, I think, in encompass like that that hard-working super duty mentality and now that the f-150 is so beefed up you know that's that's a lot of people's work trucks nowadays that's what i yep i go i clean pools uh here to keep the cash flow going and keep the vitamin d going and i use that i use my truck it's 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 a savage you know we take it hunting we take it to the beach it uh it's a great truck so I feel like we should be sponsored by Ford now. Well, let's get on the phone. What are we waiting for? Yeah. Oh, we just talked. We just got like a five minute plug. Yeah. Jeez Louise. Yeah. So sorry. <laughs> I skipped ahead. We got to go yeah. backwards. Got to go backwards in time. Exactly. We jumped to the very end of the story almost. So that being said though, Murph, if you don't mind, like I'd like to uh, kind of get your, your backstory. I'd like to hear, you know, why you enlisted in the Marine Corps kind of where you started, maybe, uh, you know, a little bit about your childhood. Let's, let's, let's start from the beginning and then, uh, take it from there. And then, um, we'll definitely get into the show and what you're doing now. So. Sounds good. So I'll really summarize the first part really quick. So I was born in Indiana. Uh, when I was two, my parents moved to Southern California. Um, my dad was a California native. So we, we lived there for, for about 11 years, 12 years. And then right before my eighth grade year, uh, we moved back to a small town in Indiana, um, you know, lived in a small little two bedroom mobile home and like just a small town to this day, it still doesn't have any stoplights. It has like four, I think four to six four way stop signs, um, probably a post office that will fit inside your house, the little grocery store with two gas pumps out in front of it. Um, so it's like one of those real small country towns. That's cool. Um, 
So I played a few sports in high school. Actually, I didn't play any sports till my junior year. I started playing football. I threw the shot put and discus. Kind of got involved in athletics. Uh, one of my coaches uh, was a was a Marine. He's a big Cherokee Indian, like six foot four, six foot five, huge man. Um, he's the one that kind of got me interested in the Marine Corps. You know, just the way he carried himself. But I didn't really have a plan. I was a good student, but I knew college wasn't for me. So I checked out some trade schools. So February of my senior year, I'm sitting in English class right before lunch. And this guy by the name of Vernon turns around and says, what are you doing after school today? And I said, I have no plans. He said, why don't you talk to the Marine Corps recruiter with me? I'm like, man, Vernon really cares about me, looking out for me. You know, like, Vernon doesn't give two craps about you. He's trying to get two people to join so he can get promoted at the boot camp is what Vernon was doing. <laughs> but at the time I thought, man, Vernon really cares about my future. So we went and I talked to the recruiter. I was just impressed by the way he carried himself, you know, the, the, this uniform, just the way he talked. Um, that was on a Monday. Um, I went home, told my parents I was 17. Um, I think they had an idea that I would do the military. So that Wednesday they met the recruiter sign the appropriate paperwork so I can go up and get the physical done. And then I remember walking out of um, school on Thursday and at the flagpole was my recruiter. This time he's in full dress blues. And I'm like, see that guy right there. He's for me. That's, that's my ride. You know, I just remember being so proud thinking, man, that he's here for me. I'm going to be like him one day. He picks me up, takes me to MEPS. You know, I, I take the ASFAB that night. The next day I enlist for, um, for six years. Uh, the reason why it was six, because I went into a very technical MOS and it was a five-year enlistment automatically. And they just said, hey, if you go six years, you get PFC out of boot camp. I'm like, sold. So <laughs> I, I guess I was what the recruiting field called an easy sell. What was the MOS? Um, I was avionics technician on Hueys and Cobras. Okay. That's what I, that's what I went in for first. So, so I, that was February of uh, 1990. Um, I graduated high school in May. Uh, I worked with my dad my dad was construction at the time. He did windows and doors. So I worked with him throughout the summer, goofed off really a lot. And then in November of that year, I, I left for boot camp. And uh, what's San Diego or uh, Paris Island? Yeah, down in San Diego. Okay. So I learned how it all worked once I actually, we'll talk about, I did recruiting. So I learned how it works. So if your recruiting station headquarters is west of the Mississippi, you go to um, South or Southern California. If your recruiting station headquarters is east of the Mississippi, then you go to Paris Island. So I lived in Indiana which is obviously east of the Mississippi, but recruiting station in Annapolis works for ninth Marine Corps districts, which at the time headquarters was in Kansas city. Oh, so therefore I went yeah. to, interesting. Uh, I went to San Diego. So I didn't know how all that worked until I was actually a recruiter. So, so after boot camp, uh, my first school was in Millington, Tennessee. I was, um, barely past the school. Really. It was pretty overwhelming. I, I think I failed the test once a week. And then if you failed the test, you had to spend half your Saturday in school, like getting remediated. And I'm like, so I was really second guessing my decisions. Cause I think, man, maybe I bit off more than I can chew. Like I can do the PT, the physical training. I could do everything else, but the academic stuff was, was pretty tough. 
I ended up getting, finishing that school in uh, December. And then my next school was in Camp Pendleton, California, where I actually learned the avionics and systems on the Huey and Cobra. So Millington, Tennessee was basic electronics. Then that follow-on school was to teach you those electronics and how they applied to the Huey and Cobra. And that school was four months. But in that school, we had lab. So we had a lot of hands-on. And then eventually it just it started clicking. And then I went to the fleet. Um, I was with the helicopter squadron for about six years, did a few deployments with them, um, married at the time. And because I, my wife and I got married between my um, going to um, my first school and my second school. So we got married. So she endured a you know, few deployments. I got back um, from the last deployment, went to another helicopter squadron. And then before I knew it, my six years was up. And I'm like, oh, dang, that went fast. So I really loved the Marine Corps. So we ended up, um, I ended up reading listing for four years where I was an instructor. So that second school I went to, I was now an instructor. So I was an avionics instructor. So those kids coming to me from now Pensacola because Millington had closed its door and moved all its stuff down to Pensacola. So I taught my MOS for four years. So it was very rewarding. It was the best thing about instructing was when they say you have a young man or young lady who just can't get it. They just don't understand. But all you do is change the way you describe something or throw in a scenario or just a different word. And then all of a sudden you see the light bulb go off and you're like, Oh, Oh, that's awesome. So that's the best part about teaching is knowing that you conveying something to somebody is helping them grasp the subject. So, and that was the best part of teaching was really, you know, especially the, the ones that didn't understand, but the way you would change like the wording, like I said, or maybe you totally related it to something different and they, they clicked with them. So I did that job for four years and then before I knew it, it was time to re-enlist again. And were um, you at, were you at Pendleton as an yeah, instructor? I sure was. I was okay. at the station right at Camp Pendleton. Nice. Okay. I love Oceanside. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is. I remember going to Oceanside in the early nineties and it wasn't the, the place to be, but over the past like several years, they actually the se- several years that I was still there, it really transformed to be a beautiful place to hang out. Like in the early nineties, you wouldn't want to go down there by yourself at night. Well, we joke, not, we joke with our friends. We say, we go, Hey, we've been going to Oceanside since you used to step on needles on the beach. You know, <laughs> you could, you know, you trip over a couple crackheads and step on some needles. Uh, yeah. well, that's how long we've been going there. So, uh, yeah, we love that area. Yeah. It's, it's really transformed over the past 20 now 30 years to someplace that you actually want to go and hang out at versus someplace you want to avoid. Yeah. They've really cleaned up that downtown area. Um, the beaches are safer, you know, it, it's very, uh, similar to like a Carlsbad almost now where it's very touristy. Yes. So. Which is good for the community. Good for the Marines too. I mean, they, they deserve to get off base and, you know, feel safe and, you know, feel like that they're, their community cares about them. Yeah. Yeah. So from there, so from there you reenlisted again. Yeah. So I knew that I wanted to be, I wanted to go the first sergeant route and I know to do that is highly competitive. So I had to have a special duty. Um, so the Marine Corps, you know, you have three types of special duty, you, the three main ones, I should say, 
at the time you had drill instructor duty, embassy duty, and recruiting duty. And since I was in a very technical MOS, the chances of getting out of that MOS to do a specialty were slim to none. But I knew that recruiting duty, nobody volunteers for, hardly ever. So I figured if I were to get out of the MOS, they would at least approve recruiting duty. So I put in for recruiting duty. Um, They approved it. So I went to recruiter school down in San Diego. And then I ended up going to um, a small town in Indiana called Scottsburg. So it was about 29 miles north of Louisville, um, Kentucky. So I was down there for three years. Recruiting was probably one of the hardest jobs I ever did in the Marine Corps. Like really, because your, your mission, you have 36 separate missions. So you're out there for three months, but every month, you know, you have to find your quota. You know, for me, it was two, two applicants a month had to re-enlist or had to enlist. So you're making phone calls, you're getting up super early in the morning, you're on the road a lot, you're working weekends, um, your family definitely suffers, takes the brunt of you not being there. It's, it's really, I think, worse than a deployment because your hours are just all over the place. What was what were some of the biggest objections to the, the potential recruits you talked to? Like, what was their, their main concern or what, what were the reasons they didn't sign up? Um, well, because I think misconception about what the military was. So I was, I started recruiting duty right, I started in, I think, February or March of 2001. So, you know, say eight months later, you know, the September 11th tax happened. So the mentality definitely shifted um, between when I first started and then after the attacks on September 11th. Because after the September 11th attacks, finding finding applicants was no problem. They were pouring in your door. It was finding quality applicants that the Marine Corps wanted was the hard part. So what I saw was um, a lot of misconception about the military. A lot of the young men and young ladies I talked to had no idea that you can get your education benefits to the military. They didn't really know a lot of the, like the medical benefits. So a lot of it was just like getting rid of misconceptions about what they thought the military actually was when it came to them being taken care of. Hmm. That's interesting. Do you think, um, and I know it's a couple of years removed, but how big of an issue do you think it is today of, you know, I've read stories about recruits not being physically fit. You know, there's a lot of drug use amongst young people. I mean, was that, was that an issue you were seeing back then? Or do you think that's, that's a fairly new phenomenon? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Um, it's hard to say the area that I recruited in was a pretty, I would say very rural area. A lot of meth was in all the areas. Um, I think the, the lot of things I struggled with was sometimes um, phys- physical fitness, the lack of physical fitness, I should say, um, especially nowadays. We're talking more video games now. Um, you know, in boot camp, there were a lot more stress fractures. And I think we a lot of us talked about it as senior leadership. So I think one of the things that happened, so you have a young man or young lady that, that hasn't really done anything physical their whole life. So they joined the military and now their body's doing stuff. It's never done before. So it's not used to the stress of running or carrying a load and weight. So you have a lot more injuries. So I know that I had some, you know, you had to be very careful when you were getting those, um, 
young ladies and young men ready for boot camp. You couldn't run them too much. You couldn't have them do too much physical stuff. You had to ease them into it. So that's something the Marine Corps did a really good job of is taking care of their people before they shipped to boot camp. I know I, I, I sent 66 young men to boot camp and 63 graduated. So I was pretty, I was very happy about that. That's the thing I'm most proud of about as a recruiter is that I only lost three young men um, that went to boot camp because they, they just couldn't make it. But I'm, I'm very happy with that. That's probably, like I said, the most like success that I had had in recruiting was my lack of attrition when they went to boot camp. You were, you were picking quality, quality guys and, and ladies uh, that were not dropping the ball when they got there. Yeah. I just like uh, my son just went into the army and uh, as we were going through that process, I was sitting around talking to the recruiter and he, he was saying some of the same things you are. He, he said, you know, the hardest thing today is, is, you know, you think that, you know, the, the persona is, is that if you have no other choice, you go into the military, right? Like you go to jail or go to the military. And I think you and I are of that age where, that, that kind of started to change in the 90s, right? Like they started to be particular, you know, it wasn't coming out of that Vietnam era kind of thing. And and the recruiter today was telling me, hey man, we we got plenty of people coming in wanting to go, but they can't meet the physical requirements. Um, they can't pass the, the ASVAB, it's called something else now, but the equivalent of the ASVAB um, and things of that nature and can't keep them, you know, you, you can't get them qualified medically. You can't get them qualified. You know, he said, we go through so many checks. And I just started laughing. I said, man, when I went in, I, I mean, I like went to the recruiter. I was at MEPS like the next day. They basically said, can you breathe? Put some blood in a vial. Pick your MOS. We'll see you in a couple months. Like it wasn't, you know, there wasn't that much of a, a my, my son had to go through all kinds of weird you know, medical checks and other things just to get to MEPS, you know, it was weird, but yeah, it's a different world, I think, than, than, uh, the, our generation. I agree to that. Yeah. It's, it, it's just harder to get into the military in general. I know like legal wise, um, you know, physical, um, issues with somebody tracking down medical records from 20 years ago. You know, if I have a young man that was 24, but he, had an injury when he was five years old, the MEPS would be, Hey, we need yeah. records on those stitches. I'm like, it's 20 years ago. They're yeah. like, Oh, well then at least get a letter from his parents saying the doctor's dead and the records are destroyed. And you'd have to go type up a letter and have mom and dad sign it, attesting that yes, this doctor no longer is in practice and his records have been destroyed. I'm like, so that's like how much stuff a recruiter has to yeah. go through sometimes to, to meet those requirements. So, so let me ask you, you don't seem like this kind of guy, Murph, but what was the best lie you told some knucklehead that was going <laughs> to be infantry? Like what was, what was the best lie recruiter lie you told? You know, that's the funny thing. And I, people are kind of saying whatever. I never lied to a kid. I, uh, that's, I preface that with, you don't seem like that kind of guy, but you know, yeah, I think that's the, I think that was the number one thing in my community is that the previous recruiter. So the previous Marine Corps recruiter was barred from going to the high school because of some issues. Terrible. So I, I had that hill to climb because the previous recruiter had done some shadiness and got caught 
Um, the previous recruiter before him also did some shadiness and got caught. So I was up, I had an uphill battle at first. Um, but one of the things I did since I was an instructor, like I said, going to recruiting duty, I got my Indiana teaching, my substitute teaching license. So oh, wow. I substituted as a, as a substitute in my local high school. And it, it was just here and there. And then before I know it, my next year there, I substituted every Thursday, the whole day. Um, for a, did, you, like a, did you wear your uniform? I did. Yeah. Oh, that's I awesome. That's yeah, awesome. I wore the uniform of the day, whatever it was. Some days I'd wear my dress blues just so the, the kids could see it, but I would sub. Um, the gentleman had, uh, he had to have dialysis on Thursdays. So I substituted his study hall. And then before that knew it, then the teacher's like, Hey, we're talking history. Can you come in and talk about what the Marines did in world war two or Vietnam? I had a very good friend who just recently passed away. His name was Tom. He was a Korean Vietnam Arab Marine. So I would bring Tom with me to the school and he oh, would wow. tell the story about him in Vietnam and what the Marines did in Vietnam. So the kids would hear it firsthand from him. So, so it was really cool to be tied in with the community. I mean, even to this day, um, I left recruiting duty in 2004. Um, we still try to make it down to that town every couple of years and well, at least to see Tom. Um, but we, you know, try to see people. I know a lot of the kids that I recruited from that community still talk to me to this day. Uh, I just found out one yesterday, just wrote a book about his experience as a Marine. So and it was really cool to be tied into the community when it came to that. So and yeah, that's really so that, incredible about, about Tom. Do you, do you remember some of the stories that he would tell? I mean, can you remember? I'd love to hear that if you remember. Yeah. So he talked about, cause he was on, he was on a gunboat. Um, one of the things Tom did was he, he, um, he was on a gunboat that patrolled one of the waterways in Vietnam. So okay. he, would, he would talk to the kids about what his mission was and like how you didn't really know who was the enemy and who was the enemy. So he really did a good job explaining to the kids, like, you know, how hard it was to be a service member in Vietnam. You know, it just wasn't all about what you saw on TV. He, he really explained it to them and, and really did a good job of just breaking it down to them so they could understand that everything you see on TV isn't true. And he was just a really good asset to the community. That's for sure. Gosh, yeah, if so. I'd have had that in my high school, I might've ended up being a Marine. Yeah. So <laughs> yes, Never. Yes, it was fun. The PE teacher would let me sub a kid, like take over the class. So I'd run them around the track calling Marine Corps cadence you oh know, gosh! What an experience! Like so, so it was it was pretty fun to to substitute for the at the schools. So that's two thousand four. <clears throat> so, so you're about fourteen. Is that fourteen years into your career? Yep. So, okay. I so I left recruiting. I was about thirteen years into my career. I went back to that school that I came from, and now I was in charge of this the avionics division. Um, I had a certain type of teaching certificate it's called a master training specialist and that role at the school required one i was one of the few marines that was available so i i was ready to go back to the fleet but the marine corps said no nope, you're going to go back to the school and take charge of it so i was in charge of the avionics division i was there for roughly two years and then got sent to a helicopter squadron um, was there for about a year and then i got selected for first sergeant 
And um, within two months, I got orders. I got promoted because um, I was a pretty senior gunnery sergeant. So when I got promoted to first sergeant, I got orders directly to 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines. So, and that's at the very northern end of Camp Pendleton. I just remember my wife, when I called and told her, hey, I have orders. And I, because she was ready to go somewhere else. We'd been in Pendleton the whole time. Um, I just told her, hey, I got orders. She said, where at? And I said, 2nd uh, Battalion, 5th Marines. She's like, where is that? <laughs> I said, Camp Pendleton. And I remember her telling my daughter, she's like, you may live in California, but you're not a Californian. And I'm like, "Uh Oh, <laughs> so, that's awesome. But the Marine Corps picked. So I went to second battalion, fifth Marines. I was there for two years, did a couple deployments, um, with so, them. So I'm not completely familiar with, so in the Marine Corps, when you, you go become a first sergeant, do you then, when you went to the 5th Marines, now are you part of an infantry battalion or? I was. Okay, okay. So I'll, I could break it down really quick. So when you're a, when you're a gunnery sergeant, E7 in the Marine Corps, you, you do your annual fitness report. And you put on your fitness report, do you want to be a master sergeant or a first sergeant? That's You tell the Marine Corps how you'd like to go, but the Marine Corps will tell you how they feel you're best suited. So when the promotion board meets every year, they'll, if you put an F on your fitness report, they'll consider you for first sergeant and master sergeant. If you put an M on your fitness report, they won't consider you for first sergeant. Gotcha. For example, when I was, I was in the promotion zone for first sergeant and master sergeant. So if the Marine Corps said, you know what, he's not suited to be a first sergeant, we'll promote him a master sergeant and then he'll stay within his MOS and be the technical advisor, you know, in his MOS. Okay. That, that makes sense. It's a little different yeah. in the army. Uh, it's a little different yeah. how that works. Yeah. So we, uh, and that's go, still E8, right? Yep. E8. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And if you go first sergeant, then you're basically, you do the same role as a Marine Corps Sergeant Major or an army command Sergeant Major. You're, you're the senior enlisted advisor to that commander. Um, usually it's a first sergeant, it's a company. So it's a, it's a, um, a captain, you know, at the battalion level, you're talking Lieutenant Colonel, you know, regimental level and higher, you're talking full Colonel, <laughs> but that's, and then, so, cause I went to Fort Leonard Wood and learned how the army did it. And I'm like, okay, yeah, you guys do it different than we do. But so a I spent, a little different, uh, yeah. you know, on our end, uh, most of my first sergeants, I was a scout, and so most of our first sergeants at the, at the, it, we're going to get in the weeds here, but in the cavalry, it's not a company, it's a troop. So the troop first sergeant was generally, uh, if it was either a 19 kilo or 19 Delta. So you either had a tanker or a scout first sergeant. Um, and then at the regimental or battalion level, then it could be anything. You could have aviation guys, you know, once you got to E9, is kind of when they, you could go anywhere. You know, if, if, I, if I'd have gotten promoted to E9, I could end up being a sergeant major in any kind of battalion is what I'm saying. So I think that next rank level is is the comparison. Anyway, we're getting in the weeds. Sorry. It's just interesting. I didn't, I wasn't yeah. quite tracking what you were saying. So, but now you're in the infantry. Yep. Okay. So, yeah. So I'm with the straight infantry. Um, I was with Echo Company. I did a deployment with them. We were mechanized infantry, so wherever we went, you know, we were augmented by AAVs. You know, that's the amphibious assault vehicle. That's the troop carrier that you know goes in the back of a Navy ship. 
you know, they pop out, hold about 24 Marines, you know, cruise in um, on the water, hit the beach, and then assault inland. Then my second uh, deployment was with Gulf Company. We were the Helo-born company. So anywhere we went inserted, it was, you know, via CH-46 or CH-53, those two types of helicopters. Um, did Where did my, you, where'd you deploy to? Uh, mostly the Middle East. Okay. So, mostly Iraq yeah. or Afghanistan? Yeah, the Kuwait, Kuwait area mostly. Okay. And then we, we did a lot of stuff in Jordan with the Jordanians. Okay. And then we spent just a lot of time sitting on the ship in the Gulf too, okay. just kind of, kind of waiting for that. And then one of my deployments, I got to go to Japan. Um, ended up taking my company and trading with the Japanese Ground Self Defense Force up in um, what would be known as the Nagano Olympic area. Um, we were up in northern Japan and trained with them for got to climb Mount Fuji. Wow. Um, so it, it, oh, was, wow. it was pretty pretty cool experience um just overall you know got to learn their culture um basically trained and lived with them for like i think it was almost three three weeks or so very cool what was your impression of the japanese troops they're pretty uh, squared away yeah very squared away very very professional um very professional so i you know i started um functional fitness or crossfit at the time in 2008 and then my second deployment <laughs> Well, I had gear, you know, since I was the first sergeant, I can, Hey, let's take this gear with us. Yes. First sergeant. Okay. So we took a dumbbell. Well, I had this big tire that we took with us. So one day, a few of my Marines and I are out flipping this tire. It's like a 300, 400 pound tire. We're just flipping the tire for some, some PT and some of their troops came over and like, can, can, can we try? So we, we had an interpreter with us and like, yeah, so they tried, well, that tire built a lot of relationships because we would be out there as a team of three, maybe two Marines and one guy from the Japanese ground self-defense force. And we'd mix it up when we'd race each other, but that PT is universal in the military and just doing PT with them. We grew a pretty good bond with a lot of those soldiers from, from that force that we worked with. That's, that's cool. Yeah. It's definitely it's it's funny the little things sometimes the little adversities the little un, or the little uh, discomforts of the things that bring you close together it's it's neat to see even if you don't speak the same language that's that's cool yeah it was very yeah. fun I mean because the weather was horrible that whole time it was that real cold rain where yeah. it's just uncomfortable all the time um, so anything you can do to kind of have a little bit of fun so it was very fun to train with those guys and then we got to see a lot of the stuff that they did their techniques they learned from us. We learned from them. So it was a joint, a joint learning experience. Really. It was, it was pretty awesome. Just out of curiosity, I know it was a few years ago, but was, um, was a Chinese threat on the radar of the Japanese forces at the time? Were they preparing for that at that time? Or is that kind of too far away? Yeah, that's a good question. They, they didn't really ever talk about it. Um, so, and, you know, I couldn't really answer that question. They okay. never really discussed it. It was really focusing. They really were good about focusing on the task at hand. Okay. So if they were told this is what we were going to do, then that's what they focused on and that's what they planned for. So interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I just asked because it seems like the world has uh, changed quite a bit in the last couple of years and China's really making some serious moves. So I'm just. Yeah, I agree. I, I bet their mindset's a lot different now than than it was when, when I was there. And this was back in. A 2009 time frame when we trained with them so okay 
Yeah, that's interesting. Very cool. Okay. So you got, that's about the time you got into uh, to functional fitness and the CrossFit. What was your inspiration for that? How did you, uh, how did you stumble onto that? Well, there's a guy by the name of um, Brian Shantosh. So he was, so I was walking down the battalion CP one day. I had just checked in. I'm in my service office and this guy walks out of his office with his cami bottoms on no t-shirt. And he's like, you're a big mother. He's like, you need to do some stuff with me. So I'm like, who is this dude? I'm like, like he's walking around the company office with the battalion office with no t-shirt on his cami bottoms on. And well, it turns out his name was Brian Shantosh and he's, he's really a war hero. He won the the Navy cross, um, for his actions, um, in, I think, believe 2004. And he introduced me to, to functional fitness, to CrossFit, um, our first deployment together was on the USS Dubuque. So we would get, there's a group of us that got together every day and we trained. And the first workout I did, like I was mentioning to Brian earlier, it was like five minutes long and it destroyed me. Oh. And you know, I'm a, I'm a Marine first sergeant. I'm in the best shape that there you could find. And a five minute workout left me laying down, like, like almost dying. So I'm like, uh, Okay, it's my opener. <laughs> I'm hooked. And then we continue to train that way. And um, my Marines and well, they didn't enjoy the process. They enjoy the end product, but the process of you know physical fitness is always is always a not an easy road. But they they saw results. Um, you know, a lot of us that trained together, and it really brought us together. Um, especially a lot of times when you have nothing to do overseas. You know, you're waiting to go somewhere. You know, you, the physical fitness is really what kind of keeps you like put together that and maybe a lot of spades. I was going to say playing spades and, and uh, yeah. And working out. Yeah. Very nice. Hey, so with the, um, I, I want to briefly touch on the, the, the CrossFit and the functional medicine for someone that or functional fitness for someone that's maybe kind of struggling, looking for something new to do. Would you recommend I mean, is there a, a certain level of fitness you have to be at to start on a CrossFit functional fitness type regimen? Or do you think yeah. that that's something that anybody could try at, at any level? Yeah, I think you can, I'm a coach now. I've been coaching for probably 10, 10 plus years. Um, and you can pretty much start at any level. My young, my oldest daughter had just started some, some basic stuff that she does here at the house. And I showed her with some, some dumbbells and like a kettlebell and some stuff she bought offline, like you can do it from home. Like, I think yeah. just doing it correctly, you know, finding some good instruction is the, is the best thing. But like I said, when you, if you have no fitness level, starting somewhere is better than, than right. continuing the, the route you're at now. Yeah. Roger yeah. that. What would, where would you suggest, if someone was interested in that, where would you suggest they, they start? What's a good like stepping off point? Yeah, if you're looking for functional fitness, I would just go to the phone book and maybe pick out a couple of gyms in your area. Most gyms will let you, you know, try a class or try several classes. Like our gym will let you come like three different times before you have to make a commitment. Um, okay. But I would check out a variety of locations and just kind of see what how much what the knowledge base is, the the people that are there training, what's their expertise. Um, you know, are, is that a right fit for you? You know, is it a weightlifting type gym or is it some type of gym where you're going to get constant coaching? 
So I would always just check out a couple facilities that are in your, you know, immediate area and visit them all. Cause most places are going to explain to you what they have to offer and answer your questions and let you try them out for a couple times for free. Very cool. Very nice. Very nice. All right. So that was, that brings us up to, what was that? Uh, 2008 we're at 2009 ish. Yep. So about 2010, I got back from my last deployment. So, you know, the Marine Corps tries to take you out of the fight, so to speak. So, so I did back-to-back deployments. So the Marine Corps sent me to uh, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, which uh, is an army base. As uh, you know, Fort, then. Fort lost in the woods. Yes, sir. So, um, so I was down there. I was uh, company first sergeant for the engineer company that's down there. So Fort Leonard Wood, for those that don't know, Fort Leonard Wood is a training installation um, about right between Springfield, Missouri, and St. Louis. So like Ben said, Fort Lost in the Woods because it's surrounded by communities. So that communities that are really small. So for example, if you wanted to go somewhere other than a Goodies or a Walmart, you had to drive to Springfield or St. Louis. And it's a, it's a, it's hillbilly country. It's down I'm from, I'm from St. Louis. So, okay. Yeah. I went to high school on the Illinois side of the river there in St. Louis, but uh, we, yeah, that you, you get out North and West of, of St. Louis. It's a lot of hillbilly country. <laughs> yeah. That's known as the, the doze arc, so to speak. Yeah, and, yep. But we, uh, so I was down there, um, and then, so I was there for about a year, a little over a year or so. And then, but what I did, I, you know, I came home every day. I wasn't sleeping out in the field. I wasn't being deployed. I got to see the kids every day, the wife every day. And then um, I knew that if I stayed in any longer, it's back to the, the, the deployment rotation. Um, but more than anything, I wanted to be a sergeant major. That's the reason I went the first sergeant route because first sergeants get promoted to sergeant major. And, but I knew if I went, accepted promotion and continued on, I would be deployed again and again. Um, I had missed two plus years of my kids' lives through deployments. Uh, my oldest at the time was, I believe, around, I think, seventh grade. And I knew that if I stayed in, I, was, I wasn't going to see them grow up the rest of their life. So I made the decision to retire at 22 years. Um, it was the hardest decision I had ever made when it comes to, do I live my dream of being a 30-year Marine, a, you know, a Sergeant Major, or do I watch my kids grow up? So I remember going to retirement ceremonies, and the thing that stuck out the most was when that Marine said, I want to thank my wife for raising our kids. And I'm like, that struck a bell because I heard that multiple times because um, a lot of people retired from Fort Leonard Wood. Um, it just seems to be like a, a lot of place that a lot of Marines decide to end their career. So I'm like, so I did a, that decision to make and I didn't want my kids to grow up without me being involved and I didn't want to not see them anymore. Um, I just remember one deployment, like I remember leaving and the kids are this age. When I get back, they're doing their own laundry because my wife taught them how to do their own laundry. And I'm like, um, what are they doing? She's like, they're doing their laundry. I'm like they were barely walking when I left. Now they're doing their laundry. Like, so it's like, um, so for one, you know, those dependents of military, they, 
they have it hard. I mean, especially during deployments, they do everything. You know, they're the mother, the father, the the keeper of the house, the keeper of the bills. I mean, everything. So, you I mean, that, that's a hard job for them. And I didn't want her to do that anymore. And I wanted to be involved with the kids. So I, so I submitted for retirement and I retired in June of, of 2012 after 22 years. So wow. then, the, then the hard part was the job hunt. Um, <clears throat> so I ended up going to, I got hired by Lowe's Corporation as a human resources manager here in the town of Warrensburg. So we, we really enjoyed Missouri. We liked the community. We liked how far your retirement dollar goes. Um, it just was a good place to, to seem to raise the kids. <coughs> so we decided to come up here to, to Missouri or to stay in Missouri. I worked at Lowe's. Um, but during that time, the transition time, I thought I had my act together. I had gotten my master's degree while I was still in the Marine Corps. Um, you know, I got hired on as the HR manager. But what I wouldn't do, I wouldn't be involved with the VFW. I rejected the American Legion. They have a Marine Corps League up here I rejected. I was afraid that if I belonged to one of those groups that we would talk about the military and I would, I would miss it. So I didn't want to be involved with anything military related. So I separated myself from everything. My friends, I really kind of, without thinking about it, I cut off all my friends that I served with. Like I said, I wouldn't do anything military uh, related. And <clears throat> that probably wasn't the right thing to do. So I talk about that now. Like I could have, being involved with the group would have probably helped my transition. Instead, I kind of self-isolated, if you will. Um, so that's one of the things I would tell people, if you're separating, be involved with something, a veteran group, find a friend that's a veteran, um, go to the VFW, the Marine Corps league, because what I ended up realizing was I, what I missed the most about the military was people that had the like mind that acted like me, talked like me, that could understand if I said an acronym, they're like, Oh, I know what that means. You know, you don't have to explain everything. So I think transitioning would have been a lot easier if I would have connected to the veteran community instead of ignoring the veteran community. So. That's interesting. Yeah, I, for what it's worth, I, I joined the uh, the American Legion, I guess, two years ago, and uh, it, it's it's really interesting. It's a neat group of guys, um, and if nothing else, it's it's a good way to give back. Because I know I've I've done a couple. I've gone out and checked on older veterans that you know are sick, and. Um, it's a good feeling to help those guys because, you know, not to some of those older veterans, you know, they're, they're not in the best of health and they really appreciate someone to come check on them and someone to just even say hi to them. And it, it's been really rewarding just if for nothing else, then I can talk to some of those veterans and give them a hand if they need it. So just anyone out there that's, that's thinking about it. I, I second exactly what, uh, what Murph are saying. Um, don't be afraid to join those groups. They're, they're, really beneficial. They do a lot of good in the community and it's just a good resource. It's a good place to network. Um, and it's, it's a way to give back to people that are, you know, maybe in a little more need than, than you are at the time. So please, uh, reach out to those guys. They're, they're good groups. So that's just my own experience, but man, I, I, uh, I'm sitting here listening to you Murph and, um, I didn't do 20 years, but, uh, when I, when I got out of the army, um, and moved here to Las Vegas, uh, I, I got out uh, and it's a long story, but I didn't want to get out. Um, I had to take care of my kids. My, my ex-wife took off and 
left me with three kids and I kind of similar decision, but different circumstances. Um, you know, and when you say God, country and family, you know, I've always put family first. I think on that list, I loved every moment of my service, but sacrificing my kids was not the, the answer. And when I got here to Las Vegas, I, um, I, the, they have a national guard cavalry unit here and, uh, they reached out to me. I was a staff sergeant, you know, and they, um, I had deployment under my belt and everything else. And they needed qualified guys to come run some scout platoons. And I refused to do it for that exact reason. I felt like if I go do this, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back in, I'm going to leave my family and I'm going to, I'll find an excuse. Um, and I just like you, I mean, I, I mean, I'm a little choked up actually. It really touched me what you just said. Um, you really realize at least for me, and it sounds like for you that the camaraderie, the guys in the platoon, um, guys that think like you talk, like you say what they mean and mean what they say, uh, is really what you miss. It's not cleaning latrines and doing, you know, and all the crap that comes along with being a soldier or a Marine. Right. Uh, it's, it's the guys. Right. Um, and it took me a while to realize that as well, that, you know, embrace your veteranness, I guess is the word, embrace it. And, you know, and meet guys like Brian. I mean, I'm, I'm just coming into, you know, over the last few years, I've always been proud of being a soldier, but you know, where I'm, you know, with our company, we started and other things. I'm embracing that and embracing that community like Brian's talking about. And it's just, I, I'm rambling. I tend to ramble, but the, the, you saying that almost sounded like me. It almost sounded like my thoughts. And it really touched me that there's another person out there that, you know, it's just it, kind of the same track. It's just amazing to hear that. I think our listeners that are veterans or going to be veteran, you know, going to separate soon should hear that, that there's, there's always something out there, you know, but sorry, rambling. Oh, I understand uh, that. I think, um, like I said, if I were to tell anybody separating, um, definitely connect to somebody, you know, whether or not that's a, a new, um, coworker you meet at work, that's a veteran, like you said, or one of the groups, just find somebody that you can kind of at least share some camaraderie with or somebody that has a basic understanding of what you went through. They may do, they may be a different branch of the military, but they're going to understand at least some of what you're saying or what you're feeling. So I think that's, yeah. I mean, and you know what, even, even if your your two buddies end up being crayon eating Marine Corps guys that you end up spending a bunch of time with and doing a podcast with, <laughs> I'm just joking. Yeah. <laughs> No, I, you guys are totally right. And I mean, for anyone out there that's transitioning, I mean, it, you know, if nothing else, I think maybe some veterans too, they don't want to fall back on that. They don't want their identity to only be, you know, a veteran. And I think maybe some people are, are nervous about that too. It's like, well, you don't have to only be a veteran. You don't have to only be a Marine. You know I mean? I think maybe for a long time, I kind of thought that way too, but um, it, it's, you got to realize it's something that you sacrificed a large part of your life to, and it's something that you'll always be part of, but you know, that community is out there, you know, they're um, all the veterans that I've talked to on this show and, you know, Ben too, it, there's a, there's a common theme amongst everyone and, and it's networking, you know, and it's, you're not going to get anywhere by 
you know, sitting inside your house and watching TV and, and you have that built in network of, of other veterans, you know, just reach out to people. And it's amazing. You know, you, if, if nothing else, you're going to build some good friendships, but at the same time, if there's something else that you want to do, you know, in your life, it, there's no reason not to reach out to people, talk to people, be friendly. You know, like we're talking about the VFW, the American Legion, everything we're saying, just get out there and be friendly and say hi and, you know, have a beer with somebody because you never know what relationship is going to develop. Um, and that's exactly the way Ben and I hooked up, uh, just, you know, totally random, but, uh, had I not reached out to him, you know, we, we all three wouldn't be sitting here. So it's, it's amazing how things work and it's amazing how things just fall into place. So, you know, I, we're all on the same page, we're all in agreement, but I just want to emphasize that just, yeah, it's, it's you know. such a, um, you know, since we started Ma Deuce, it is amazing to me, the, the social media network of, veteran companies, veteran people. I mean, you Murph, we, you know how many people we reached out to and said, Hey, you know, can we advertise and send you a shirt? And how many people one ignored us Two, you know, sure. I'll wear a shirt and throw a post up. If you send me a grand for one post and I, you know, I, I'll tell you listeners, uh, Mr. Murphy said he, he immediately responded and said sure. he was the most gracious person on the planet. And it, it, it you know, I'm telling you, he, his personality is very calm. You're getting that here. He's a good man. But a lot of that comes from being a veteran. Um, veterans are willing to help. They've sacrificed time, life, years of their lives to, to help community, help country, help each other. And that continues to carry on. So if there's, you know, again, if there's listeners out there, just and we always get back to the the struggles, the guys that are struggling. Right. And we always end up getting to this point on these podcasts when we're talking to other veterans is, is a veteran needs to find a purpose when you, when you're done. Right. And part of that purpose has to start with, with finding some friends. Um, you know, the guys that are out there struggling today, uh, mentally struggling through addiction, whatever it is, you know, they've lost purpose. You know, and it's a struggle. So anyway, so, so, so you retire, you're working at Lowe's. <laughs> then what do we do? How, then we're, where do we go from there? Or you, yeah, I'm with Lowe's, I'm with Lowe's for about seven years. And, you know, as you know, corporations change. So Lowe's made a, just a corporate decision to eliminate the HR role from their store. So, so it put me on the hunt for a job. What the? Yeah, they they went with the corporate like an online model, oh. so to speak, and like a one eight hundred number. Um, I mean, they're a veteran friendly company, so I have to give them that. They do hire a lot of veterans. They do take care of the veteran community, except for when they eliminate your job. But anyway, so <laughs> but that so it put me on the hunt for a job. Um, I had worked with the military and veterans center at the University of Central Missouri before because when we hire. Um, like I said, we hire veterans. So I would take my job postings to this center just to make them aware so I can maybe get some veterans part-time that are going to school. Well, I found out that the job was opened. They were looking for a director of the center. So I applied. Um, I got hired on there in, um, to see July of 2019 is when I started. I, so the military veteran center at the school, what they do is anytime anybody that's military connected, whether it be a veteran, active duty service member, family member who maybe had their benefits transferred to them by their families, um, 
we would process their benefits so they would go so they can go to school. So they get their VA benefits paid, their BAH paid, their book stipend. You know, depending upon what kind of GI Bill they, they use, my center processed that. We also, um, you know, removed any kind of roadblocks. So, for example, if a, if a veteran couldn't find a house, I, I had communities that I could work with that would help the veteran find some place to live. Or maybe the veteran needed a job. I was tied in with some local, so local employers. We reach out to them. So maybe that veteran could get employment Why why he or she's going to school. Um, maybe they had some issues with just adjusting. So we have counselors that were available to talk to um, the veterans. So it was kind of like a one a, one place to go on campus where the veterans taken care of. So we had computers for them set up. We have coffee going 24-7. I paired up with like Black Rifle Coffee. They donated like pounds and pounds of coffee to us. So we always had good coffee brewing in the center. So it was just a good place for veterans to hang out. And then... Then here comes um, Tough as Nails. So um, I wasn't looking to do anything on TV. So the, the funny story was out of the blue um, earlier that year, um, I got a message from a guy from the Discovery Channel saying, hey, I'm from the Discovery Channel. Uh, we're putting this show together. We think you would be great on it. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. I thought it was a joke, you know, some spam or some prank. And he's like, no, my name's Jonathan. Here's my credentials. Look me up. And sure enough, he was a casting producer for the Discovery Channel. How did they How did they find you? Through Instagram. Really? Yeah, they were looking for a veteran for this show. Um, so they were looking for a veteran. He he happened to come across me. Um, that's He reached out to me. And so I did some casting calls uh, from some Zoom calls for the Discovery Channel. Their, their show just never got off the ground. Um, but I walked away thinking, well, that's cool. I've never been casted for a show before. So that was in uh, January, 2019 said I got hired with, um, UCM in July of 19. And then out of the blue in October, uh, Jonathan, that casting producer reached out to me and said, Hey, um, CBS is putting this show together. I think you would be amazing. I already told him about you, but you have to fill out this application. So they'll contact you. So that's the same, the same guy, same guy. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, so he sent me the application. So I, what the hell I'll, I'll fill it out. It took like 30 seconds to fill it out. Um, that next day CBS casting called and said, Hey, can you do a zoom call tomorrow? I said, absolutely. So I did a zoom call with a young man by the name of Gabriel. And then a few days later he said, Hey, CBS loved your zoom. Can you zoom again? I said, sure. So the next time I Zoomed, I actually Zoomed with Phil, the producer of the show, um, some the other co-producers, and a few other people from CBS. It was a quick Zoom. only lasted a few moments, and it was over. I'm like, oh, I guess, I guess I'm not picked. It's cool. Whatever. So I thought, once again, cool experience. Well, a couple weeks later, they called me and said, hey, Murph, can you fly to L.A. in December for about a week to do the casting process? So I flew down to L.A. They, they kept us, um, all the contestants at a hotel down in um, just south of their studio where we did the casting process. You know, like some a physical um, talking on camera, um, just really kind of getting to know a little bit about the show without a lot, without getting to a lot to know a lot about the show, if, if that makes sense. Um, and then. That was December 2019. They said, we'll let you know right after the new year. Um, right after the new year, um, Jenny, who's the casting producer, called me and said, hey, Murph, we want you on the show. 
Um, you, you need to be available for 30 days, but we need you out here like next week. And so I'm like, oh, so I talked to the president of the university because like I said, I'd only been with the university for about six months. So I didn't have enough vacation time. So the president of the university understood, hey, this could be a good thing. Um, so he allowed me to take some time to go film. So we've actually filmed all of season one. We got out there mid-January and we filmed all the way to mid-February. So we basically filmed uh, three episodes a week. Um, okay. So, so you got a little break between the physical crap you did, right? Yeah. So it was, uh, so to give somebody an idea how it worked, we would, we stayed in an extended stay hotel. Um, the whole time you're out there, you turn in your cell phone, laptop, whatever your electronic devices were. So you had no contact with family. You had no contact with the outside world. Um, anytime you went anywhere, you were escorted by Hollywood talent people, um, it was to keep the integrity of the show also to, you know, so no secrets would get out. Right. But uh, we all stayed at the extended stay hotel in Burbank, California. The day would start about 6 a.m. We would meet in the hotel lobby for breakfast. About 6.30, we would get in the vans. Um, they would turn our microphones and cameras on because they would, you know, they recorded everything. You know, our conversations in the van, what we we're going to do that day or what we thought we were going to do. We'd pull up to the job site. Uh, which we had no idea what we were doing until we got to the job site. Then Phil would roll up on screen and say, Hey, your job today is this. Um, so we would do, um, if it was a team day, we would do the team competition, do lunch. Then the rest of the day we would do like interviews. Uh, we would talk about what we did and, and just all the interviews that go with that. <clears throat> if it was a individual day, then we would do the individual competition, do lunch, um, or do the, the overtime challenge and do interviews the rest of the day. Um, we filmed in Southern LA, um, LA, North of LA, uh, depending upon where we filmed that because of traffic, we would get back to the hotel anywhere from six to, to nine o'clock at night. Um, so we would film, like I said, three episodes a week. We had Saturdays off and that was to, um, like do laundry. We made a group trip to Walmart for like any kind of groceries you wanted in your room or, you know, any, any kind of stuff like that. Um, and then that was it Sunday, and, Sunday through third through Friday. Now you couldn't talk to your family for that whole time or just while you were recording the whole time. So your wife had no idea how you were doing. That's correct. Oh, that's awesome. So she's, she's on pins and needles the whole time. Yeah. So they have no idea what you're doing out there. Like you said, there's no communicating. They have emergency phone numbers. So if something happens, they can get a hold of right, right. somebody on the, on the CBS team. But yeah, you're pretty much isolated the whole 30 days. <clears throat> so it's almost like an old school deployment from the nineties. <laughs> um, you know, no telephone. Um, you know, there was no letter mail cause they didn't even know where we were staying or anything like that. So, but it was a great experience. <clears throat> so to kind of tie it in. So when the, I told you, I separated myself when I was in the Marine Corps or when I got out of the Marine Corps, um, I started kind of getting back in the swing of things when I took over as the director of the military veterans center, you know, being with veterans, but I'm not, I'm not saying the show healed me, but the show made me feel like a Marine again in the fact that, so we had this, you had to get to know a small group of people in a short amount of time to accomplish a job. And it felt like the military. 
you know, in the military, sometimes you're thrown into a unit where you're getting ready to deploy. So you got to get to know the people around you to accomplish a mission. Well, in this case, I got to know a small amount of people in a short amount of time to accomplish a work job. So it almost felt like I was in the military again. And it was very, like, it was amazing. And none of them, none of my fellow castmates were veterans. I was the only veteran on season one. But the atmosphere was, felt very military-ish. And that was very awesome to be a part of. <clears throat> I have nothing bad. I have no bad experiences about the show at all. Phil, the host, is, a, is an amazing man. Um, he's tried to get this show off the ground for like 10 years. Um, he was heavily influenced by his grandfather because Phil's an immigrant from New Zealand. His grandfather was a mechanic and gunsmith during World War II. So he wanted to create a show to honor his, his grandfather. <coughs> Excuse me. So he wanted to create a show to honor his grandfather. So he's been trying to get CBS to do this show for years. Well, finally, last year, they agreed and he, he put it together. Um, and Phil just said, Hey, I want you to be yourself and do this stuff the best you can. That was the only guidance. Like we weren't asked to act a certain way. We had no lines, no script. It was just be yourself and, and do this stuff the best you can. That's all. And all the other contestants, were they, uh, kind of recruited the same way you were, were they, or did they apply proactively? Um, some of them were found, um, similar to myself. Um, okay. some of them went to the castings cause they had a, they had a mobile stage that they hauled around the United States. They did a casting call in New York and went up in Chicago. I think they did one in Vegas um, where people would, you know, go and try out, um, you know, or at least meet to apply. So a lot of some of the crew, some of the cast from season one did the casting tour and some of them were, were found like myself. I think my favorite line from the show was, and I, I apologize, she's probably going to listen to this, but uh, the older lady that said, she says uh, in an interview, she goes, man, Murph, I would follow Murph anywhere. I'd clean latrines for Murph. I would clean the floors for Murph. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not quoting it exactly, but this, this, this older lady that, you know, wouldn't, you, you wouldn't expect to be tough as nails who ended up being pretty tough. Uh, she, she just goes on and on and on about how, how great you are and, and what a great leader and how you brought the team together. And, and it was just awesome to watch that. Yeah. That's my teammate, Michelle. She's an amazing lady. Um, her husband actually is a, is a Marine Vietnam veteran. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. So she, and unfortunately, you know, he's not doing too well cause he has some health issues, but you know, she, she would, you know, told me a little bit about him, but, um, but yeah, she's an amazing lady. And that's a, the best thing about the show is you never know. You could, what I've really learned, obviously in the military, you know, never judge a book by its cover because some of your most fiercest Marines or soldiers was that guy that's like five foot one that weighs 120 pounds. You know, he'll lay a whooping on that big guy in a heartbeat. So in the military, you learn not to judge a book by his cover. Well, the show really reinforced that with Michelle. You got a 62 year old lady that's like five foot tall. 120 pounds and she crushed it you know she yeah, she did top male competitors um you know she never quit she was multifaceted could do a little bit of everything and was good at it and that's what the show really proved is that you kind of have to be well-rounded um to do to do well on that show it's a great show uh season two is what we're four episodes into it now i think, I think it's live so. right now so yep. episode five i think was just last night last night yep yeah it's a great show what so what was your 
what what was your toughest challenge for you personally on the show? Um, well, I think, well, there was a few. So I would say one of the toughest was getting to know your team and to overcome like the communications issues that we had. So those of you that watched season one, my team won the very first challenge and then we lost like four in a row. We had communication issues. We didn't know how to work together. We would step on each other's toes. When one of us was in charge, one of us would step on each other. So through a lot of communication, getting to know each other and like really getting to know each other and caring about each other. I mean, we turned it around and when, you know, the next, um, three to, to, to tie it back up. So I would say that getting to know each other and communicating through issues and like putting your ego to the side and learning somebody else's personality. And I think that was probably one of the hardest, but that's just like the military, you know, getting to know your, your troops um, and how to employ them. So it was really for us, it was getting to know five other people and how can we best complement each other? Yeah, and you didn't have, I mean, watching it back, and it, uh, you know, it probably took a million hours of tape and we got to see the show right out of that million hours of tape. But watching it back, you didn't have any weak players on either side. I mean, it just, they're they're all quality people. They're all hard workers. They're all tough in their own right. Uh, yeah, it's probably a bunch of type A personalities trying to mesh there. You know, I can see that completely. Yeah, it definitely was. And that was probably one of the hardest things to over for us to overcome was, hey, especially when, because every job you had to designate a foreman or a leader. And yeah. so our first several challenges, whatever leader was designated, even I stepped on the leader's toes, you know, instead of surrendering. So one of the things about being a leader is you can't always be a leader. If there's somebody there that has more experience than you, then they're the one taking charge. Yeah. So once we got rid of all, you know, once we all checked our egos at the door, so to speak, and learned how to communicate with each other, you know, our team was, was unstoppable. Yeah. Sounds a lot like Ranger school, you know, Ranger school, you go in and they strip your rank and you know, you, when you're lead, when you're the leader, you're supposed to be the leader. When you're the follower, you're supposed to be the follower and, and you're being judged on both. You know, right. you're not just being judged when you're, when you're being a leader. So uh, sounds similar to that. What physically though, what, what was, I mean, when you guys were cutting down that brush, that looked like I wanted to quit, but <laughs> is there, yeah, so we, we hiked up that mountain. So that, that was the Deval training center. It's a firefighter training center in the Los Angeles, in the Northern Los Angeles County area. So it's a real training center. So we were on a mountain, the hillside. And when we, Right before we started the challenge, the winds were just crazy. So, I mean, it was pretty fierce chopping up the, the brush, but then fighting the wind to try to get to keep the brush out of your area. So that was a pretty physically um, demanding challenge. Um, for yeah. sure. That one, uh, one of the other ones was when you guys are putting um, the rocks in the bags. It reminded me of Bosnia. I had to fill a sandbag every time you walk by the sand pit, you had to fill a sandbag, you know, some of that stuff. And then uh, I'm trying to think of all the things you did. Um, I just rewatched the highlights too tonight. Um, how, how did you uh, talk to us a little bit about overcoming your uh, fear of heights? So um, when I was younger, I really didn't have a fear of heights, but 
as I got older in the Marine Corps and, and had some bad experiences, so to speak, I started not liking heights anymore. And um, so when I retired, I'm like, <clears throat> well, good. And I don't have to do this anymore. Even putting up Christmas lights, my life's like, all right, I'll get the ladder and I'll do it. I'm like, well, thank you because I don't really want to do it. I don't want to be on the ladder. I don't want to be up in heights anymore because it really, I really found it very discomforting to be um, even on a step ladder. So, but the show, I never really thought about, do I have to do heights? I never, there wasn't a thing that I thought about then. So one day we're parked in downtown LA, right in front of a, um, like a soup kitchen. And that's where we staged the vehicle. So we still have no idea what we're doing. So they're like the production teams, all right, get in the vehicle. We're going to do the drive on. So we drive around this building and turn the corner and all of a sudden all these damn telephone poles. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Oh no. So, and there was already, there was the, the hurt man or the dummy already hanging up there. And I'm like, I, you got to be kidding me. I got to climb a telephone pole. So I'm like, well, <laughs> this may not go so well. This may be my time to punch out of the competition. So what they did, so they geared us up, um, you know, kind of showed us how to use the foot spikes and the belt that you use to, to climb a pole. And um, you couldn't practice. You could only stick your spikes in and go up not even a foot off the ground because they wanted to film you doing it from, you know, from some zero to a hundred basically. So you're kind of get a familiar with the gear. So, but the whole time, just like in the military, um, like trusting in your equipment was huge. You know, we trust in our weapon systems. We trust in the harness that you use. If you're going to repel, you trust in, you know, your parachute. So in the military, it's really about trusting your equipment and your gear. So, all I did was put some trust in my gear and really focused on what I had to do. And that was just climb the pole and wrap this rope around the top a certain way, hook it to the dummy, lower the dummy. So all I did was really focus on what I had to do. I kept replaying the steps through my head. So as I climbed the pole and I'm suspended up there, I'm not thinking about being off the ground. I think about the task at hand and that's all I thought about. And then I had a little slip um, because you, you were supposed to lock your knees out and I was trying to do something. I, you know, I lost um, focus. I kind of regained my footing, so to speak. and just really focused on the task at hand. And before I know it, I, I won my heat. So out of the four of us that went that time, I was the fastest person. Um, so I won that part of the challenge. So that's kind of how I overcome it. I just really focused on the task at hand. I didn't focus on being so many feet up in the air. Did you have a favorite challenge that you uh, feel like you excelled at, or did you have one that you thought you could uh, just knock out of the park without any question? Um, well, my f probably per my personal f favorite is so I did the so I overcome the, that little bit of fear. Well, then a few episodes later, um, I didn't do so well finding a, a dummy in a, in a building. So I went into overtime, and the overtime now I had to repel. And rappelling was a whole lot different than climbing up the telephone pole. <laughs> uh, you know, the telephone pole, I'm, you know, it's just straight up and down. And rappelling, you know, it was a lot higher than those of you that rappelled. You know, you've, you've got to break. you got to go over that, that wall. It's the hardest part. Yeah. So once I rappelled, then that was a very proud moment for me because – I felt like I overcame a lot when I climbed the telephone pole, but when I repelled, I'm like, I have definitely taken care of my fear of heights, like by doing this. 
So, so that is probably the most proudest moment I okay. I have personally, just because it's overcoming something that I found to be very uncomfortable. So, so you Clint Eastwood did it. You adapted. You overcame. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> so, cool. so at the end. Um, you make the stairs, you get to the top, you win the thing. But that, that last day, is that the daughter they highlighted? Was that, that, is that your daughter that's in the Navy now? Yes. Yeah. So, um, so they flew cause we had that day before we had narrowed it down from four to three. Well, they contacted the family members and cause our, the last day of filming for us was actually on Valentine's day. So they told the family that flew out there, um, the three finalist families, that you're coming out for like a Valentine's Day special. So they had no idea why they were even coming out there. Wow. So they That's thought they cool. were coming out here for that. And then lo and behold, you know, they turn the corner and um, they're, you know, they find out that they're there to watch the final. So, yeah, my wife came and then my youngest daughter, who was enlisted in the Navy, that was going to leave that July uh, so she came out. So, so and you weren't, got, you hadn't seen her for a little bit, right? Yeah. We hadn't seen the family up to that point almost, but right about 30 days. So, Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So your daughter is still in the Navy. Yep. So she, she left. So the season premiere last year was July the 2nd, I believe. I think it was the second and she was there. She got to see the premiere and then she shipped the boot camp that very next Wednesday. So when season two came on, she was on the airplane to go up to Chicago to go to boot camp. Well, are we, we're not going to call that boot camp, Are we, are we, I mean, you can't diss your daughter <laughs> on a podcast, but is that really downtown Chicago? Is that a, <laughs> yeah, it's a, uh, so we were just up there actually uh, two weeks ago. Um, so it's great lakes. And I thought the base would be huge because now they Great Lakes is like two separate bases. They have this boot camp side and they have the school side that they're all at now. And it's uh it's definitely there's not a lot to do up there. That's yeah. all I can say. Well she, so she's still in training. She's not in the fleet yet. That's correct. So she's in her first school. So what she'll be doing is she's gonna work on um and operate the weapon systems on Navy ships. She just doesn't know what weapon systems yet. So she's, so in, her, she's in her first school. So she's going to be a badass, even though she's in the Navy. Yes. All right, right. She was going to go to the, she was going to do the nuclear program, actually. That's oh. what her first, so she was accepted to Mizzou University and was going to do Navy ROTC. Um, and then one day she came home and said, I, I, I'm, I'm ready to go. I want to get started with life. Like, oh, okay. Nope. So... And, and uh, what, what's her name, if you don't mind saying? Shelby. Shelby, thank you for your service if you get to listen to this. Very proud of you. We love it. I love seeing generational, you know, I'm everything military and veteran, and I just love the fact that she's following in your footsteps. You know, my, my dad was a career Air Force guy, and all of my grandfathers were career Navy guys, and you know, so it's, uh, I love it. So Shelby, good for you. Yeah. She's enjoying it. So they, uh, you know, COVID obviously would put a damper on everything because they had to quarantine for two weeks before they even started boot camp. You know, they start boot camp and then they had to quarantine like during boot camp because somebody got COVID. Yeah. 
And then, you know, we were, we going to go to the graduation ceremony because of COVID. Um, and then, so I pulled the, I'm retired card, so to speak. So, <laughs> um, we, I actually, I, I contacted a, a Marine that really helped me that was up there. And, um, I'm like, Hey, Sergeant major can, this is who I am. He's like, can I get on base? Cause I'm retired. I have a retired ID card. And so he did some checking like, Hey, you can come up on base. So we zoomed me and my wife zoomed up there and, and saw her, um, she was in holds. So she was waiting her school. So we at least got to see her, uh, spent the weekend kind of really just sitting in the truck because you couldn't go anywhere because of COVID. So, um, we just kind of talked and, um, sat in the little food court, you know, but it was good to see her. And then the, the Navy let everybody come home during, you know, most schools in the military will shut down for, you know, a few days during Christmas. So they let all the sailors go during Christmas time. So they got to come home. Um, Shelby was here for about nine days. Uh, went back up to Chicago. Um, they all had to quarantine again for like 10 to 14 days and they all started their schools again. So she'll be there for another several months and then she'll get orders to determine what her school is next, depending upon the weapons platform that she's on. It's awesome. Yeah. It's funny. You and I have some very similar, my son was at uh, Fort Benning, came home for a couple days at Christmas, went back, had to do the quarantine thing. Then he went from, he went from basic training to jump school, which is just across the street and they had to quarantine. And then, you know, it's Jeez, yeah. weird. So then he, he's at Fort Bragg. He, he finally got, he went to the 82nd airborne division, but he's, he's a scout in Fort Bragg now, but, um, same, very similar kind of, we had to watch his graduation on like a Facebook live kind of thing. And yep, that's what we did. Yeah. It was kind of weird, but you know, it's pretty cool still. Yeah. So, so you win, what was that feeling when you when you hit the I don't know if you had to hit a buzzer, I don't remember, but you got to the top, you built those crazy stairs, you got up there. What was the first thing through your mind? Like I'm finally done with this, or I'm getting a badass truck, or <laughs> what what was the first thing through your mind? Well, I, I think so what I did, so when you get to the very top, what I grabbed was the key fob to the truck. Oh, okay. So gotcha. there was each of us at the very top of the stairs was a key fob. So once you grab that key fob, that's, that's how they determine the winner. So I think it was just over, it was elation really, because the reason I wanted to do the show is because I wanted to prove to myself that I could still bring it like I did, or I felt like I did in the Marine Corps. So to, to actually prove to myself that I could still do it was the most important thing for me to do the show. Like, cause going out to do the show, we had no idea what the prizes were. No, we didn't know what the prizes were until we were filming episode one when Phil said, Hey, if you win, this is what you get. So I went out there not knowing what the prize money is, what you were, I was even getting a truck. We, we had no new no idea what they were. Um, but I knew that if I won, I could prove to myself that I could still do it. So I think once I grabbed the key fob, it was just a pure emotion knowing that I worked my ass off and I proved that I could still do it. Yeah, definitely, definitely worked your butt off on that, uh, on that show. Some of those things I just went, good Lord, you know, tough as nails. I guess the, that's why they call it that. Right. Yeah. They say it was, it was a very fun, it's, it was fun to be a part of. It's fun to watch now. 
Um, I've communicated with a lot of the contestants from season two. Um, you know, Meryl um, from season two, she's an Air Force, um, you know, retired colonel that's on the show. She was actually in the Navy for 10 years, and then she tra- she flew helicopters and she trans- transitioned to the Air Force and then ended up, you know, being the only female at that point to fly the U-2. Oh, wow. So, you know, she's a contestant on season two. Um, I've got to talk to her a lot. She's a super nice lady. Definitely somebody that you might want to talk to about being on the podcast because, you know, she's a veteran, um, you know, a lot of different experiences being in two branches of the military. That's crazy. Yeah, no, that'd be. That, we need to make that happen because I would, if nothing else, I would love to speak to someone that got to fly the U-2. That would be incredible. I mean, she's obviously, she sounds amazing, but flying the U-2, that's, that and the SR-71 are my two, uh, probably my two favorite planes ever. That's, that would be incredible. Yeah, she told me, so a lot of the pilots for the U-2 were actually Marines. Well. So, yeah, so they, uh, they have like a program where they can transition over. I, I'm not really sure how it works, but she said that they got to be so like Marine and Navy heavy. That <laughs> they, they, they stopped inter-service transfers. <laughs> so that's crazy. That's all. Yeah. That. So, so you said you changed. So you, you, you you're at the central Missouri. You were the veteran advocate. You, you mentioned you changed jobs. What, what position do you have now because of the show? Yeah, so the, sh- the show is pretty popular. Uh, um, yeah, I've done a lot of things since the show. So um, they approached me and said, hey, would you like to do something different? So what I do now is I do veteran recruitment. So I talk to veterans about, like, why they should come to my university. Um, once COVID's lifted, I'll travel to, like, the local military installations, you know, talk to the education offices. Um, but I also do outreach um, to so when I a veteran from UCM um, graduates or they're part of the ROTC program, I just communicate with that alumni. Um, you know, let them know about different military events that the university has. Try to get them connected, or at least give them a point of contact with the university. Um, and I do a lot of public speaking. To <coughs> I do a lot of public speaking for them, like just in general. Like the show's giving me the opportunity to do a lot for the veteran community. I was invited up. My son and I went to the Capitol. Um, the governor invited us up. He, he hosted us in his office. Um, we met senators, um, local representatives. Isn't, uh, isn't Holly from Missouri? <clears throat> yes. Yeah, he, I like that guy. He, yeah, he seems had, like a good senator. Yeah, so I met a ton of senators. Actually, my, my son and myself sit on the Senate the rotunda up there. And I think that's what it's called. And we got to see the legislation like happening. So it was, it was really cool um, to do that. I've had congressmen and well, Congressman Hartzler has personally come to my office to ask me what she could do for the veteran community. So I've got like hot, I got phone numbers for congressmen that they say, Hey, if you need something or something could be done for the veterans, call me, text me. So it, wow. I would have never had that if it wasn't for the show, you know, to have a direct line to your congressman, their personal cell phone saying, hey, if you need something or um, if the veteran community, if you think we could do something better, then then let me know. So, you know what? Kudos, kudos for you for for I've said this like 10 times in this episode, but 
for being gracious enough to, I mean, you've, you've earned some, some well, uh, well earned fame, you know, and you haven't, it seems to me you haven't changed one bit. And in fact, you've probably even a little more humble now. Um, and then kudos to your congressman though, for taking the opportunity to, to make a change if they can, because, you know, I can tell you right now, most of the congressmen, uh, in the state of Nevada could, are not doing that. You know, we, we've reached out and tried, we have a, a couple, but you know, kudos to them, to an elected official reaching out to you and trying to, to make a difference if they can, you know, that's awesome. Yeah. It's pretty, like I said, the state of Missouri is very veteran friendly. So, I mean, it's, that's one of the awesome things about living here is they, they do really want to get involved. Um, I've been asked to sit on a few committees or committees for veterans, veterans welfare. I'm on a few committees here locally that I've been asked to sit on. So it's pretty cool to, they enjoy hearing this, the stories about the show. So it's kind of, you know, it works out for both of us. Um, I get to bring up some veteran issues to them and like I'm tied in. I'm not part of the VFW or anybody because I don't want to show favoritism towards the other, but when they have events, um, committees I go to, I, so I get to, I know the VFW commander, the American Legion commander through the different committees that we sit on. We have a, a veterans home right here in, in this town. So I do some stuff with the veterans home. So it's a pretty good community to be part of if you're a veteran. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's incredible. Well, what do you think the, what do you think the biggest challenges of what are you, what would you like to see changed right now? I mean, you're, you're involved in so many things. Well, what's your main concern right now for the veteran community? Yeah. That's a good one. I would say just making the veterans aware of all the resources that they have, um, you know, whether or not that's education benefits or I guess the biggest thing too, is like we had, like great education benefits, but a lot of veterans never take advantage of them. It doesn't, it just doesn't mean money for college. It's trade schools, technical schools, truck driving school, you know, getting to the veterans to know all the, all the things that are available to them. And I know it's changing a little bit. So for example, when you get out, when you transition out of the military, you're supposed to go to what they call tap and tamp transition assistance program. Mm -hmm. So you know, trying to get everybody to those classes, um, get them educated on what's available to them. Um, you know, I never really used the VA much till recently. And that's, that's something I should have been taking advantage of from the very beginning, sure. you know, letting the better know why they should go to that VA clinic versus the, you know, the local doctor or whatever the case may be. No question. So, so just letting the veterans know like the best things to go to. And that's why I think when, when you get out or retire, tie yourself in with the veteran community or the VFW, somebody that can kind of give you guidance. Hey, if I have this issue, who do I go talk to? That's outstanding. Yeah. So, so Murph, let me ask you a question. Um, you know, Brian started this podcast journey, brought me into the fold recently and, we love to talk to people about their stories where we end up talking to a lot of veterans. It's not necessary to be a veteran, to be a, on an episode, but our main goal is to, we are, we're always trying to get some sort of message to people out there that if you want to make a change, whether it's in your fitness program, 
whether it's in your career, whether it's you want to go to college, you're struggling with something, whether it's addiction. Um, is there any advice that you would give your, you've, you've proven that you could do it outside of the military. You've proven that you can kick ass, but, but at some point when you went on the show, you had to make a mental decision. I'm not going to quit. I'm going to do this. I'm going to wake up today and I'm going to go climb that flag or not the, 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 the telephone pole. I'm going to repel. Is there advice that you can give to our listeners that may be struggling with wanting to make a change, but scared to do it? Yeah, that's a good question. So I would say, and I was asked this before, and I'm very consistent with this. That's for sure. Take advantage of every opportunity because you may never get it again. So, for example, if I would have passed on tough as nails and said, no, I'm not interested, and then this show comes on TV and I'm like, wow, I could have been a part of that. And now I'm going to kick myself in the butt the rest of my life because I didn't take advantage of that. I'd rather try something and fail at it. And then at least I know, okay, you sucked at it. Then to spend the rest of my life wondering, wow, what could I have done with that opportunity? Would I have been good? Would I have been bad? So I would say take advantage of every opportunity because you may never get that chance again. Outstanding. That's a great answer. Definitely agree with that. That's awesome. Well, I think we've covered a lot and I think we should be respectful of uh, Murph's time. Um, I just want to say, Murph, it's been a real pleasure and a real honor being able to, uh, to talk to you. You, you have an incredible story and, um, it's really impressive to see everything you've done for the community. Um, so I we really appreciate you sharing your time with us. It's, it's been a real pleasure. Um, so that being said, um, before we go, can you uh, tell everyone where they can find you on social media? Um, if they have any questions for you, or maybe, uh, you know, if they wanted to, if they had any questions about uh, college, um, just let them, people know where they can find you. Sure. So, so my Instagram is kwmurph72, so kwmurph72. Or, I mean, if it's really related to school, they can shoot me an email at kmurphy at ucmo.edu and be more than happy to answer any kind of questions about education benefits or whatever the case may be. That's great. And we'll, uh, we'll definitely post that up in our, our show notes and uh, on our Instagram and everything else. So people can, uh, can find that, but uh, yeah, it, it's Man, been a pleasure. If you're looking to be inspired uh, to go work out, go follow this guy yeah, on, absolutely. on Instagram. <laughs> well, I appreciate you guys having me very much. I know it's, it's been super great. grateful and I'm trying to get the Madu salute down, Ben. It's just, my fingers just don't have that dexterity. <laughs> the, the, the hand sign. Yeah. The, I think yep. there, we got go. it. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Perfect. Yeah. We're going to sign off. Thanks for listening. Um, it's been a great episode. Thanks again to uh, Ben, obviously for being here and obviously Murph. Uh, it's been, been a real pleasure. So, uh, please check out our show notes. Uh, please check out Modus Nation. Obviously, please check out Murph's Instagram. Um, he's an awesome dude. Really appreciate it. So, thanks for listening, everybody, and we will uh, we will talk soon. Bye, everybody.